Easter, as is the case with most any holiday, brings with it a lot of traditions. We in the States have the Easter bunny. Uh, Australia has the Easter bibby. Um, France has the Easter bell. Italy has the exploding cart. Poland has the basket of blessing. Brazil has the burning of Judas. Spain has the dance of death. The UK has the Morris dance, and Greece has pot-throwing. I know, you're wondering what in the world is all of that. You can look it up later. The idea, though, being with all of those traditions, every single one of them, they're based in something, and they're meant to, to point back towards something, and they're meant to, to foster and encourage gathering of friends and, and family, and that, of course, creates opportunity for bonding and grounding in life because, of course, so much of life is so frenetic and chaotic. And it's good to have these times where we, where we come together and just get time together. But what, whatever the culture is and whatever the tradition is that we're thinking about, including our own, uh, those involved in all of that and people who are watching all that from the outside have every right to ask this question. What's the point? What's the point? What's the purpose? What's behind it? Why? Why all the hubbub? Why all the festival? Why all the attention? It's a very good question and one that ought to be asked with all honesty and it deserves an answer. And the answer is simply this. The resurrection is true and it has the power to change. The resurrection is true and it has the power to change. That's the point. And that's exactly what we see here in our text we're going to look at here over the next few minutes. So if you have a Bible, I ask you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I don't know if you know exactly how to get there. I'm going to give you uh, just a quick uh, road map, I guess you could say. After the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have the book of Acts, then you have the book of Romans, the first that we have listed there in the order that Paul wrote. And then after that, you have... 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We're in 1st Corinthians. So 1st Corinthians chapter 15, it's towards, almost there towards the very end of 1st Corinthians. We're going to read just the first 11 verses. 1st Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. 1st Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 11. Hear now God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Well, let's pray for a moment. Lord, we know that you had particular things in mind as you 
move through the Apostle Paul to, to write this long letter to a group of people there in a, the city of Corinth so many years ago. And we know that, of course, that culture was in some ways very different than our own, but not in every way. And those people were so different, but not really in, in the ways that matter. Uh, we have the, the same needs, the same concerns, um, the same questions, and really fundamentally the same struggles. We ask this morning here on this Easter Sunday morning that you would give us clarity as to what is the point? What is the point of the resurrection? Uh, what is the point of texts like this that lift it up so high? Um, oh, would you give us truly eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that beats in cadence with yours? We need that. We need all those things, and we need you to do it. For we can't touch our own eyes and our ears and our hearts, nor can anyone else for us. This is your work, and so we appeal to you, the risen Savior, as you have so many times before, work in us. Amen. Well, I think some background uh, might be helpful here as we're getting started. Paul is an apostle, meaning that he was specifically chosen by Jesus to be his authorized agent. So he's writing here with some authority, all the authority in the universe. And he is writing to the church in Corinth. Corinth, some of you may know, was a, a Roman colony. It was a port city, a wealthy port city, known even in its day uh, for its philosophical schools, uh, for its pagan, idolatrous worship practices in the temples all over the, the city, and then, frankly, its crass immorality as well. Uh, Paul was part of a venture that planted that church around 51 A.D., He's writing this letter just a very few years after that. He's addressing local concerns and also addressing, uh, answering particular questions uh, that they had. There was a relationship, a long-standing relationship between Paul and this church. There's even a, a prior letter that he makes allusion to here. And one of the things that he touches on, one of the questions that he has to address that they had towards, that they prompted him with, had to do with the resurrection. And on the resurrection, he says something really worth noting. You may have caught this. It's in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Of, of first importance. Now, there are many, many things in life that are of importance, no doubt. Uh, certainly, we, we could think of um, identity and ethics and meaning and purpose and value. Those are all of great importance. But Paul is saying the thing of greatest importance, of first importance, is the resurrection and everything surrounding it. This is not something that is peripheral. It is not something optional. It's not just kind of something on the side. This is something that is essential. It is vital. It is central to the Christian faith. The resurrection, please hear me, the resurrection is central and essential to the Christian faith. It stands or falls on whether or not it's actually true. Some of you may know that Easter Sunday in some traditions is referred to as Resurrection Sunday. Followers of Christ are sometimes referred to as resurrection people. Rightly so. It's, it's absolutely appropriate. 
uh, that those references would be made in that way. Why? Because of the things that we see here in, the, in this text that, that Paul is, is saying here. He's telling us here that the facts surrounding the resurrection are of first importance. The facts surrounding the resurrection are of first importance, and we desperately, desperately, desperately need to let those things sink in and settle deeply into our, our hearts and our minds. Now, now the, the facts, those facts that I'm, I've been speaking of surrounding the resurrection burst forth, blaze forth in two ways in this text. And the first has to do with the historicity of the resurrection, and the second, only because that's true, is the significance of the resurrection. Or if I can put it this way, Paul, in, just in these 11 verses, gives us something for our minds to consider and our hearts to embrace. He's after the whole of us. Something to think about and something to ponder and something to embrace and take to heart. So let's look at these in turn. First, the, the, the first of these facts, the first of the two, is the historicity of the resurrection. Paul means for us to understand, for his readers then and now to understand that what he's speaking of here, when he speaks of the resurrection, meaning, of course, that's shorthand for the resurrection of Jesus, that those are historical events in space and time, every bit as verifiable as anything else in history. And if you're a student of history and you really bear down on this, you'll come to understand it's even more so, more so when it comes to something that could be verified. Paul begins by helping us to understand that all of this came to pass as prophesied, long before the events even took place. Look at verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I'll just stop there. In accordance with the Scriptures, in accordance with the Scriptures, twice he says that, well, of course he's hearkening back to the Old Testament, that which was completed centuries before. And what he's saying is that both generally speaking in terms of themes and specifically speaking in terms of texts and verses and words that you can look up, that centuries before it had been prophesied the substitutionary death of the Christ, the Messiah, and his coming forth from the grave, rising three days later, centuries before. This is something that was, that was prophesied. Now, think of me, the, the, with me, the stunning implications, just, just you know, full stop on that. The stunning implications, just that these events that he's writing of in the mid-50s, just some 20, 25 years after they took place, had been prophesied centuries before. It's good you're seated. It tells us that this was not an afterthought. This was not something, just some idea, haphazardly thrown together, the last minute. This was something that took place in space and time, in recent times, before the beginning of time, in terms of its planning. It's absolutely stunning when you just stop and consider that. So it all took place, it's prophesied, that's one set of witnesses, if you will. But there's a second set, and, it, and Paul is making clear it all took place as testified. Let me just pick up where we left off in verse 5. And he appeared to Cephas, and that's another name for Peter, in case you, you didn't know. That's Peter. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. James is the, the brother of Jesus. 
Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I will stop there. So multiple witnesses. Multiple witnesses. Four times Paul says he appeared. This is Jesus. The risen, the, the resurrected Jesus, having come forth from the grave, four times Paul says here, appeared to these witnesses that he lists here. And this is not even an exhaustive list. So first, he speaks of, uh, of, of Peter and the 12. He speaks of 500. I'm going to come back to them in a minute, who are not named. That'd be a long list. Then he speaks of James, the brother of Jesus, and the other apostles. And then he speaks of himself as well. Now back to the 500. What, what's the big deal there? Wouldn't it have been helpful if you actually had like, you know, a footnote with a, a long list? And, uh, that's actually, in a way, it's what he's doing. He's... What is, the reason Paul says this is he's throwing down the gauntlet. I mean, how does he say? He says, they're still alive, most of them. Most of them are still alive. He's throwing down the gauntlet. He's giving a challenge. He's issuing an invitation to the skeptic, to the cynic. If you don't believe me, go back and talk to them. Go to the regions, and I promise you, just start asking around, and they'll tell you where you can find so-and-so and so-and-so who can tell you of what they saw and what they heard firsthand. Firsthand, if you don't believe me, go check out. Again, only 20, 25 years span of time between when Paul is writing and the events that he's hearkening back to. Hundreds of people are still alive. Multiple witnesses. And not just that, though. That takes us to some degree towards the historicity of this and how we can count on what Paul is saying. But also the fact he mentions what I'll call problematic witnesses. Meaning... If you're going to make up a lie, you don't insert people with baggage. You, you want people with a blemishless record if you're trying to win people to your side, to your cause, to your movement. And individuals that he lists here, they've all got baggage. They've all got stuff. Peter, the leader of the Twelve, in the moment of Jesus' greatest need, turned his back on him. That's one. James. Jesus' brother, the leader of the church in Jerusalem at the time, had grown up with Jesus, think with me, and had no clue who he was. In fact, we read elsewhere, his family members at one time thought Jesus was out of his mind. It took him so long, it took him until till almost the very end before he understood what was happening and who Jesus really was. Only until the resurrection did James understand. Paul is clearly trying to help us see that his interest in no way is to clean things up, you know, scrub the record, that kind of thing, but just to tell it as it was. Just relay it as things happened. Again, all this points towards the, the, the historicity, the reliability of the New Testament witness here. So we ask the question, Folks then ask the question, folks now ask the question, everybody in between ask the question, is this real? And the answer is absolutely yes, it's as real as it can be. This is not some, some ancient myth, this is not some tall tale, this is something on, on which it's a solid foundation on which we can and must build our lives. Some of you may be familiar with the news, uh, recent months, about a year or so, uh, from Jerusalem. The uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is a structure built over the course of centuries, off and on. It's a long, complicated story. 
Uh, built on the site, though, where most likely the, the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection actually took place. Okay? Now, what's interesting to note in that is that that, that that expanding set of buildings and structures and whatnot is sitting on a very unstable foundation. Uh, it's sitting on top of the ruins of other structures, but other structures over the course of centuries. And then uh, structural engineers are saying there's a lot of tunnels down up underneath and a lot of uh, channels uh, honeycombed all through that ground. It's so bad that without the current work that's being done to shore up that whole thing, it would likely collapse. Now think of the irony here. There's beautiful irony here. This building that is meant to signify and point towards these events has very little foundation, and yet the events to which it points is the greatest foundation you could possibly speak of. When you're talking about the resurrection of, of Jesus and the, the uh, historicity of it and the ability to, to, to press into it and push on it and stomp on it and just ask the hardest questions, it's simply not going to give. It's the greatest foundation upon which any of us could build upon. So again, the, the, the facts of the resurrection, as Paul says here, are first importance. need to let that settle in. Now, takes us to the second point. Only because of the historicity of the resurrection, can we then talk about the significance of the resurrection? Only because it's real is it worth then going any further. Uh, is it even worth considering living our lives based on it? So let's look at that, the, the meaning, the implications. And by the way, there's so much more I could have said on that last point, so much more we could talk about here than what I'm going to say, but we're just looking here at this one text here in 1 Corinthians 15. For starters, Paul says... In terms of the significance, the implications of the resurrection, it transforms death. Look at what he says, verse 6. It's just an illusion. I don't know if you caught it. And he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The terror of death. What is death? The cessation of all life alienation and separation from everything that you ever knew or loved, a sobering, frightening, terrifying reminder that nothing lasts forever. And so what do we do in the face of that terror? We desperately try to distract ourselves from any reminders of it and live in constant denial that for every single one of us, it's coming. I don't mean to sound morose, but the reality is at your dinnertime gatherings today or any time this week, a day will come, there will be one person there. Every seat in time is going to be empty. Now, we don't want to face that. We want to deny that. We want to gloss over that. We want to distract ourselves. Grab the cell phone. Give me an app. Because of the terror of death. And the resurrection, you see, brings the death of death. It brings the death of death, the end of the ultimate ends. How does Paul describe it? Sleep. 
For the believer in Christ, when they physically die, there's a sense in which we can say they are but asleep, awaiting the nudge, the awakening of Jesus on his return. That's an amazing, stunning, beautiful thing for us to consider. It means that, that the permanence of death is gone, that the foreverness of the, and the horror of the goodbyes are never forever in Christ. The resurrection transforms death. But Paul doesn't stop there. If you just pay attention to how he speaks of himself, we see it transforms life too. Verses 8 through 10. Let me go back there. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, you need to understand what Paul's perspective is here on his, on his biography. He cannot forget that there was a time when he was not Paul the apostle, but Saul the Pharisee, the persecutor of the church. Go back and read the, the book of Acts. and He was just the, the, a rabid dog in his he says, describes himself in the book of Romans as having zeal without knowledge. And that he was quite zealous in his pursuit and persecution on the church. Well, that was interrupted. And that trajectory was, was redirected when Jesus met him on the Damascus Road as he's actually on one of these persecution missions and transformed him such that now he's no longer Saul the Pharisee, the persecutor of Christ and his church, but Paul the Apostle sent forth by Christ for the sake of the church. Think of how he describes the grace of God at work in his life, a tr deep, transformative work that, that took place in this man's life. A, a repentance, a turning, just a, just a complete 180. The, the repentance he describes here, the, the honesty, the candor with which he's just, just so rejoices to lay it out to those who would but hear. The humility with which he speaks of himself and all his great labors ever since. He gives all of that to Jesus. The grace of God that is at work in this man's life. This points to the, the significance of the resurrection power and transformative grace. A lot of work has been done in, in recent years wrestling with the question, speaking of transformative power because of the resurrection, a lot of work has been done in recent years asking the questions at the scholarly level as to why was it that African slaves brought over here to serve in the terrible ways that they were being forced to do, so many of them adopted the faith of their captors. You ever think about that? You're very, the very person has, who has enslaved you, in fact, in some cases, even use the very book, the Scriptures, to justify what they were doing, completely warping it, of course. Sin can do terrible things, even the most holy things. The scholars have wrestled with the question, how was it, why was it, that so many would adopt the faith of their captors? And the answer is this. They fell in love with the God they came to discover. 
they, so many uh, came to experience in Jesus, the living Jesus, with them and for them. An, ex- an experience, a life much like their own, a suffering, a story much like their own. Uh, a community of faith, forgiveness of sin, the ability to persevere and suffer. They fell in love with Jesus. They discovered a, a different reality than this world has to offer. Unlike anything this world has to offer. Resurrection power. Because it's real. The significance is because of its reality. And it makes all the difference in the world. So is this real? Absolutely. Is there hope? Absolutely. The resurrection, the reality of the resurrection opens up the doors, opens up the vistas for any of us, any of us this morning to have a new start. Now. It doesn't matter what yesterday was like or even this morning. But now, the opportunity for a a, a new start For for anyone here who feels like their life is just littered with nothing but failure or the the scars of abuse or the brokenness of suffering or the the darkness of of depression or what seems to be the ruination by addiction, there is the resurrection, the reality of the risen Jesus. Jesus that can make any of us, like Paul, a new creation. Now. Now. The facts. The facts surrounding the resurrection. You see why Paul says they are of first importance. We need to let those things settle in. And how could it be otherwise? How could we speak of it otherwise? When you think of what the Easter message is, right? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Right. I kept doing it so you didn't get a chance to do it. Um, Into this world, into this world that of our experience that we know is so typified and dominated by disease and emptiness and broken relationships and poverty and injustice and racism and all this muck that we are so accustomed to, and we just assume, we just go through life and think, that's the way it's always been and the way it will forever be, into that same world, this news comes, Christ is risen like a lightning bolt, like a fist, into this world, sending out shockwaves, changing the landscape, changing the very ground on which we walk. Some of you may be familiar with uh, the New Madrid earthquakes. That sound, sound familiar to anybody? Uh, December, I promise you, nobody here is old enough to, to remember it. Um, we're talking December 1811 through March of 1812 in the central Mississippi Valley. According to historical records, there were hundreds, some would say thousands of varying levels of tremors, but there are three or four huge ones, somewhere around eight on the Richter scale, so severe that the shaking was felt in buildings as far away as Boston, New York City, Montreal, Washington, D.C. Thousands of forest acres were absolutely devastated in that part of the country. Five-mile-long fissures in the earth opened up. Boatsmen on the Mississippi said, 
and this was not just isolated, but several. We have several corresponding records that would, would verify waves, if you can imagine. Waves on the Mississippi River, not going south to the Gulf of Mexico, but north. The flow of the river changed for some hours. Waterfalls, if you can imagine, on the Mississippi River. Cartographers had to change the maps afterwards. Friends, the resurrection changes the map. It changes the map. Nothing can be the same. How could it be? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. How can it be the same? That message has come into this world, punched into this world, and the shock waves are going out. The facts of the resurrection, its historicity, its significance, oh, they're of first importance. May they settle in. Let's pray. Lord, may we hear. Jesus, may we hear. Where there is death, you bring life. Where there is darkness, you bring light. Where there is despair, you bring hope. Where there is brokenness, you bring healing. Not just then, but still and now, today. It's simply impossible, if we're to take this seriously, it's simply impossible to speak of an empty tomb, the risen Jesus, and then just think it's business as usual after that. We ask, we plead, because if you don't do this, it's not going to be for new eyes, new lens, a new grid, a new filter through which to see you, ourselves, the people around us, and this very world in which we live. We pray that you would work this deep, the significance, the reality and significance of the resurrection. May our celebrations be true, infused with truth. And may it flow into th and through this whole day, every day, and into everything we set our hands to. For Christ is risen. We pray in your name. Amen.